Well, hey, it's great to be back with you this morning. Thanks for joining us, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online. Thanks for spending, or you're, watching, or you're even listening later. Thanks for spending part of your week with us. I hope that it is an encouragement to you as you go through your week. Well, my name's Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Family. I'm excited to be able to uh, join you today to share with you and to wrap up our series that we're calling What If We Took Jesus' Words Seriously? One of the things I want you to know is we've talked a little bit about the website today. There's also a place there, especially if you're at home, where you can join us and follow along. And all the notes and all the verses will be right there for you if you have your phone or your tablet. Sometimes we have to throw the verses up here and then take them down kind of quick. So if you want to kind of dive in that way, you can do that as well. We're wrapping up this series uh, that we've spent the last two weeks, and this is the third week, talking about. And the reason that we started this conversation is because we're going to spend a few different parts of our year talking about Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And that was known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've split it into a couple of different sections that we'll come back to over the course of the year. And we took this first section in chapter 5, verses 1 is where we started. We're going to verse 12. And we've talked about this, and this is known as the Beatitudes, as Pastor Andrew talked about last week. And so the conversation is happening about what God blesses. And this is an important time for Jesus to be able to have this conversation with the people around him. I want to go back just briefly to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, just kind of set us up and have us understand where we're going. It says, One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. We talked about a couple weeks ago that this was a time in Jesus' ministry where he was really just getting started. He had called his first his 12 disciples. Some other people were starting to follow him, and he was starting to get really well-known in the area. So as he's traveling and as he's doing miracles, he continues to gather a crowd with him. And when he sees that, he goes up on this mountainside and he begins to teach. And it says that there were disciples there. His 12 disciples were there. There were also other people around who would have decided to follow him at this point. They were still kind of getting to know who Jesus was. And there would have also been people around who were skeptical, who were wondering, who is this Jesus guy? Why can he do the things he can do? Why does he say the things he says? Who is he really? And so if you're listening, if you're in the room at home listening later and you're skeptical of this, I would say lean in because there were people that heard this message the first time who were just as skeptical of Jesus as you may be now. And so we have to consider what Jesus is going to teach us in these verses. And what he's really doing is, we said a couple weeks ago, he's saying, let's lay the ground rules. Let's have a conversation about how this is going to work. And I talked about how if you've been to baseball stadiums, each one can be very different. There can be different rules in a baseball stadium, unlike a football field. They're all the same, right? Or a basketball court, all the same. Baseball, different. So when that happens, you got to have a conversation about the ground rules. And what Jesus is saying is, the kingdom that you understand, the way that you understand the world around you is different than the way that I want you to live. And so he says, let's lay the rules out. Let's have us understand what it means to be part of God's kingdom and not part of our own kingdom. And so we walk through the first few verses in this chapter, and now we're going to get to verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 and kind of focus on these thoughts this morning. So if you want to open, you want to go to follow along, you can open your Bible, you can turn on your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 5. To follow along with us, that would be great. We're going to start in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. 
Now, I think it's interesting, and what we can do sometimes when we read this verse is we can think, okay, I'm, I'm just going to stay out of trouble. I'm going to avoid the drama. I'm going to not contribute to the chaos or whatever's going on. I'm just going to kind of let that stay over there, and I'm going to stay over here, and we'll be all right. And I think that's part of what this is getting to. But I think there's a second step, and I think this actually means that there would be active work to live at peace and establish peace. Active work to live at peace and establish peace. And so notice he says in the verse, right, work for peace. It doesn't say those who stay out of trouble. It doesn't say those who avoid conflict. It doesn't say those who stay out of the issues. It says that people who work for peace are the ones who are going to be blessed. Well, what does that mean? What does a peacemaker do? I think they do maybe more than three things. I came up with these three things. First of all, I think they unify. And the question would be, when you step into a situation, when I step into a situation, I step into a room, or you step into a room, and there's conversation happening, do people see you as someone who's going to unify the situation or contribute in a positive way to the room? You know this, right? There's people that you see walk in, and you just go, I don't want to go over there. Right? Because maybe they, you, they, you don't want to go to the drama that they're going to talk about or want to be a part of the conflict that they may bring or they may you may not want to be in that situation. I don't know. Are you the person that when you walk into a room or when I walk into a room, are you someone who others feel is going to unify, uplift, be an encouragement, bring peace to that situation? I think peacemakers also don't create conflict. So that's the part where you say, I stay out of trouble, right? I don't go near the conflict. I don't do it. And so you don't unnecessarily bring up conflict or cause others to be at odds with one another or add to the problem. And that can be a difficult thing not to do. Now, there's times, right? You've got to push back a little bit. You've got to have a difficult conversation. But you know the difference between adding to conflict or creating a situation that doesn't need to be that way. And the third thing I think they do is they also encourage others to resolve conflict. You know, this can be a really difficult situation when you are maybe dealing with a conflict or you are not at peace. And maybe you have a situation in life. It could be at work. It could be at school. It could be wherever at home. And you have a conversation maybe with a friend about that issue, right? And so in that moment, that friend is either maybe going to be one of two types of friends. They're either going to say, you know, maybe you should see it from the other side. Maybe you should think about it from this way. What if you did things a little different over here? What if you just kind of had this conversation a little bit differently? You know, that friend's going to challenge you. They're going to ask you to make peace. They're going to they're gonna call you to be a peacemaker. You know who's the friend that's a little more fun to have sometimes, though? The one that looks at you and says, get them, right? You should stick it to them. Don't let them get off the hook. You know what? You should push back and you should even go over here and do this, right? It's so much more fun to have somebody in your corner while you're a boxer, right? And just get them, right? That's way more fun. It's the opposite of what Jesus says to do, though, isn't it? Jesus says that we work for peace. And you know, I, I wonder why sometimes we, we are so, we gravitate towards that so much. And it reminds me of a quote from a movie. The movie was The Dark Knight one of the greatest movies ever made, obviously. And so there's a conversation that happens there with Batman and Alfred. And one of the things that, that when they're talking about the Joker, he says, listen, some men just want to watch the world burn. Some, men, some people just want to create havoc and watch it 
happen. I think that's why Facebook still exists. Because it's just like, there it is, right? And when you're going through comments, if somebody posts something that's a little more controversial and you go through the comments and people push back, those are the ones that get all the likes and comments and all those kinds of things. If someone comes in and tries to be the peacemaker, everyone ignores them. Why? Because it's no fun. Listen, nobody watches NASCAR to watch these cars drive for 500 miles and not crash. Everybody want, Now, everybody wants the driver to be fine, right? But come on. You, you want to see somebody. That's why we watch football, right? Just a bunch of guys hitting each other for an hour. Like, why not? The chaos is something that we like to gravitate to. It's fun to watch. It's fun at times to engage in. But it also can be very disheartening. It also can bring damage to relationships. It also can bring issues. And so what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who work for peace. He says, why? Because they will be called children of God. And maybe you've heard this phrase too, man, they have their mom or dad's temper. Maybe you've seen that in your own life, right? Or you see attributes. As, you're, as a parent, you definitely see attributes of you. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. What Jesus is saying is that those who make peace are going to be like their heavenly why is that? You know, we talked uh, a little bit ago, we talked, you know, back at Christmas, we talked about the Prince of Peace. That's what Jesus is. And so Jesus came to our world, why? To make peace between us and our Heavenly Father because we had sin in between us. And I think one of the best ways to introduce, or sorry, introducing someone to the Prince of Peace is the best way to bring peace to their life. So this isn't just a conversation necessarily about situational things, but it would be the opportunity for us as Christ followers to look at others who don't know Jesus and who might be a little bit feeling like their life is in chaos or there's division happening or there's crisis happening or whatever, and we can say to them, let me introduce you to the Prince of Peace. Let me introduce you to someone who can help you. Let me introduce you to someone who can set you at ease. And why is that? Because when we know the Prince of Peace, we know the foundation that our life is built on, and we don't have to worry about that foundation crumbling. We all know the feeling when you've had to engage in a very large project or something like that. There's a big event or something like that. And, and you get to the point where you can finally just breathe. It's that moment on vacation where you've got all the travel done, you've gotten to where you need to go, you've gotten everything unpacked, whatever, and you've got your chair and your umbrella out on the beach, and you're just like, finally, I can just be, right? Why are we at peace there? Because everything's taken care of. And when we know the Prince of Peace, when we are people who work for peace, it doesn't mean that we don't have to still do things and live like Jesus has called us to live, but we know this underlying foundation is there of this peace that we can have because Jesus is completely in control. And we have the opportunity to look into situations where there isn't peace in the world or in any situation that we come into contact to and to bring the Prince of Peace into it and bring that foundation that can bring such rest and peace to our lives. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who work for peace and they will be called children of God. Let's go now to verses 10 through 12. And 10 through 12 talks about a very specific topic that we really want to drill down on today and kind of have a conversation about what it actually means. So in, in Matthew 5, verse 10, it says this, 
God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you, sorry, verse 11, when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. And so this word of persecution is interesting. It can be a word that we've heard a lot. It could be a word that we've heard only a little bit. And so I think it's important for us to understand what is Jesus talking about, right? What if we took Jesus' word seriously? Seriously, what does he mean in here? And we just ask the question, what is persecution? And that's the question that we're going to ask today. What is it? What does it mean? How do we understand what that looks like in our lives? And what is Jesus actually calling us to do in these verses? And Jesus actually gives two reasons in these verses why persecution happens. The first one is for doing what's right. Now, this one is probably the one that you and I have engaged with a little bit more, right? Maybe you've been in a situation where at one point in your life, you were at a party and someone handed you another drink and you said, no, I can't. I have to be responsible, right? Come on, it's a party. Like, let's go. This is just gonna be fun. No, 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 I can't. They look back at you. Why are you so lame, right? Why are you a loser? Why, why won't you have fun? And you get ridiculed because of it. Maybe it's even a situation at work and you and another coworker are thinking about a problem and you know that there's a problem with somebody else in the job and you're going to go talk about them or throw them under the bus or have a conversation that you shouldn't have about them and you stop and you go, no, 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 we can't have that conversation. But why? Like, let's just talk. No, I can't, I can't have the conversation. Man, why are you so lame? Why do you have to be that way? Why do you got to kill all the fun? And we get ridiculed, maybe, lied about, made fun of, because we stand up for what is true. And there was a situation uh, in my life when I was 17. I was a senior in high school. And when I was in high school, I actually dated a girl for two years. Um, it wasn't Becca. I'm glad I married Becca, for sure. Um, but I dated a girl for two years. And it, two years when you're in high school is kind of a long time. And my senior year, that ended, and it was rough on me. And um, a few weeks after that, I was working at Burger King. 17 was not a good year for me, like breakups, working at Burger King. It was rough. But we, we, I was at Burger King, and, and I'm, I'm hanging out, and, and my ex-girlfriend walks in. And I worked in the back, so I kind of hid. Like, I'm being honest. I was just like, I don't feel like interacting. I'm just going to sit in back and make burgers, right? But two friends of mine who worked with me, who were not Christians, uh, connected the dots on what was happening. They had a conversation. After she left, they have a conversation with me. And one of them, I kid you not, he gets to the point where he looks at me and he goes, man, did you sleep with her? The answer was no. But as a 17-year-old who was hurt, for a split second, I remember thinking, I could get back at her if I wanted to. They don't know. I could say I had an experience I didn't have. I could talk about a situation that never really happened. They never know. But I decided to do what was right. I said, no, I didn't. Both of them look at me. Come on, right? Why not? I don't know. Was it persecution? Would I go that far? I don't know. Here's what I know. It would have been way easier to go the opposite direction. It would have been way more fun to go the opposite. My, my reputation at Burger King, which sounds awful anyway as an adult, but like my reputation at Burger King would have been way better, right? But here's what happens when we decide to follow Jesus. Being like Jesus costs us our own reputation. 
Now, when you talk about good reputation, right, you want to have a good reputation. And usually in the world, if you do good things, you can have a good reputation. But at some point, following Jesus is going to cost you your own like street cred, your own relationship with your friends, your own whatever it may be. Because there's going to be times where everyone else is swimming one way and you've got to go upstream. You know, there's a couple of examples I want to go to today as things from Scripture where we understand the type of persecution we're talking about. Um, And the first place is in Daniel chapter 3. Now, this is a story that's fairly famous. Um, It's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you grew up watching VeggieTales like me, it's Rack, Shack, and Benny. Okay? And then the king is Nebuchadnezzar, so he's King Nebi. All right, so let me just set the stage, and then we'll talk about what happens. Rakshak and Benny are late teens, early 20s, having been taken from their home, and now they live in Babylon. And so they're in a foreign country, under foreign rules, being taught to do things that they never thought they would be taught to do before. And one day, King Nebuchadnezzar gets this great idea, He says, you know what, I'm going to build a gold statue, and when I decide to play the music, everyone has to stop, bow, and worship the golden statue. This is a problem for Rakshak and Benny, right? Because they can't worship anything other than God. And so they know when the music plays, they're going to have to do the opposite of everyone else and understand everyone else is going to know they're doing the opposite, right? This isn't a situation where you can kind of hide it and kind of be like, oh yeah, I did that. Like whatever, like you just lie about it and like you never really did it, but you let other people think you did. Like this is a situation where they literally can't, they're going to be the only people standing up. Everyone's going to know what they did. And so the music plays, they don't bow. Some of the king's men see them and they come to the king and they tell him, What is going on? And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? So now the situation gets even worse. Literally, the king's going to sit here and watch them play the music and watch what they do. And then, by the way, I forgot to mention the punishment is being thrown into a fiery furnace. Really escalated quickly. So... They have to decide what they're going to do, right? Here's their response. In verses 16 and 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. and He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. In verse 18, I think it's one of the coolest verses in Scripture. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So their response is, can't do it, won't do it. And by the way, 
God's going to save us. Then 18 comes in, right? But even if he doesn't, even if we're the only ones that stand up, we still can't do it. We still won't do it. You know, the reason that I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to do this was because they had a resolve to honor God that ruled their words and actions. Listen, this isn't the type of decision you make in a split split second. They didn't get this decree that came down and then sit down, all three of them, and go, hey, um, we got to decide what we're going to do here. Like, I think this was just, this was a conversation that happened between the three of them, and they all just went, you on the same page? Yup. Doing this together? Yup. Done. Like, they had resolved ahead of time that this was the direction they were going to go, and they would not worship anyone other than God. We talked about a couple weeks ago that making daily choices become eternally focused decision. This, this was an eternally focused decision that they had decided and landed on long before what King Nebuchadnezzar told them. And so when they got to this space where it was so difficult, this was not an easy thing. I mean, you're literally taking your life into your own hands in this moment. This wasn't an easy decision, but they were so sure of it because they had decided ahead of time they would not worship anyone other than God. There's another story I want to go to. Oh, by the way, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Absolutely fine, right? You can read the rest of the story later if you've never heard it. But they get thrown in, totally fine. They walk out. King Nebuchadnezzar realizes, by the way, that their God is much more powerful than any God he could ever have them worship. One more story. This one's really famous. Just go three chapters over in Daniel to Daniel chapter 6. Right? And every time you hear of Daniel, a lot of times when you hear of Daniel, you think of the lion's den, right? The other way that Jesus says we may be persecuted is simply for being identified as one of his followers. So again, the first one, for doing what's right in the face of others doing what's wrong. The second one is simply by being identified as one of his followers. The story here in Daniel contributes to that second point. You see, Daniel was targeted because of his faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were just kind of, they happened to be in the situation Nebuchadnezzar made the rule, and they were affected by it, and they had to stand up. Daniel was targeted. Daniel was actually a really close friend of the king. They had a really good relationship. And yet, some of the advisors to the king at the time did not like Daniel at all. And so they come to the king and go, hey, what about this idea? What if you say that no one is allowed to pray in our kingdom unless it's to you? The king goes, great. Kings back then had a real God complex. They had to figure out, they loved to be called deities. And so they were like, yeah, absolutely. He goes, yeah, let's make this rule. Well, the advisors knew that they were targeting Daniel. The king did not know off the top of his head that they were targeting Daniel. Well, the advisors knew that Daniel was not going to bend to this rule. So they wait. They know Daniel prayed every day, the same time, same place. They wait for him to pray. They see him praying. They come back to the king and they say, King, Daniel prayed. He didn't pray to you. The scripture actually tells us that this tore the king up so much he stayed up all night trying to figure out a way to save Daniel. Apparently it wasn't so easy for a king to just kind of pull back a law after he had made it. And yet he could not figure out a way to kind of get Daniel around this. So they have to throw Daniel into the lion's den. And that's what they do. And when we pick up 
this story in chapter 6. We'll start in verse 19. It says, Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you served so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? This verse is so interesting to me because it says that he calls out in anguish. The king wants nothing more than for God to show up and for Daniel to be absolutely fine in this situation. And he asks, is the living, is the God you serve, is he greater than lions? Is basically the question he asks. Verse 21, Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den, and not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. So Daniel's targeted specifically for being a follower of God. And yet he still stands up for what he believes in. He still continues to follow God even when death is on the table. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you were headed into a lion's den? Have you ever been in one of these situations where it seemed like people were kind of closing in around you and you were feeling like, this, this, I might have to make some real decisions here? There's one other time that comes to mind from my life where I really felt this way. Most of my examples from this come from times in my life where I worked for non-Christian organizations. I could probably do a whole sermon series on all the jobs I've had up until this point in my life. Um, but one time I worked at Best Buy, and Best Buy was actually one of the jobs I enjoyed more than others being outside of church world. Um, and while I was there, I was hired as a cashier, and then I, was, I did some customer service stuff. And about three months into working there, I got hired as kind of like a mid-level manager. And so when I was there, I was kind of in charge of all, making sure all the registers were okay, customer service was good. I, I kind of kept an eye on, on all that stuff. And I had other managers that were above me. And one of the managers who was immediately above me who did all the scheduling, she and I, we weren't ever at odds with one another, but there was always just this kind of weird-ish stuff going on because everyone there knew that I was a Christian and I was in ministry because I never worked Sundays. Now, it didn't necessarily have to do with me just saying I can't work, like I didn't want to work Sundays, but I had church in the morning, I had youth group in the afternoon, so I was like, I, I can't. And the thing at the time was that you had to work at least three of the five weekend shifts, which was Friday night, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. So I always had to work Friday night and Saturday because I could never be there on Sunday. And she was the one who did the scheduling, and she knew this, and so she always had to figure that out. But here's the other thing that was true of her was she was a lesbian. And so there was always this kind of like unspoken question of whether we liked each other or not. We got along fine. But one day it kind of came to a head and, and we were closing down the store one night. And I'm, we're in the back office together. I'm counting money. She's making sure all the things that went through on credit cards were correct that day. And there were cameras in the room and there was always had to be two people while you were counting the money for accountability and all that stuff. And we were just having gen general conversation. I don't, I don't remember exactly how we got to this point. But it, literally, she turned around, she looked me in the eye, and she said, do you think you're, I'm going to hell because I'm gay? And I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm in a room with my immediate superior, and I have to answer this question. So I said a quick prayer in the back of my mind. And I said, some, I'm paraphrasing, I said something like this. I said, 
listen, I think God disagrees with your lifestyle, and it's not what the Bible teaches. But I said, I feel like I am just as much a sinner as you. I deserve hell just as much as you. But I believe Jesus died and rose for my sins, and that's the only thing that gets me in heaven. And I like breathed for a second. <laughs> I kid you not. That immediate moment, the general manager of the store walks into the room. He can tell there's tension because you could cut it with a knife. And he goes, what are you guys talking about? And she tells him. He looks at me in the eye and goes, are you telling her she's wrong for her lifestyle? At this moment, I'm like, I'm fired. Like, there's no way around it. I'm just done. Amazingly, she says, no, 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 no. We're having a great conversation. And I walked out of the room with my job. Now, I'm not telling you there were lions in that room, but it felt like it. That was a tough spot. And I know that the three instances I just shared with you, right? We talked about stories from Daniel. I give you my story. But God says what? He blesses those who are persecuted. Sometimes God is going to show up in those moments and he's going to escort us out of the lion's den, out of the Best Buy office, and we're not going to be any worse off. But sometimes that's not true. You know, I read some things this week just about um, some persecution around the world. And just a brief understanding of kind of what's happening um, from Christianity today. 12 to 13 people every day around the world are killed just for following Jesus. 12 to 13 buildings every day, whether they're churches or other parachurch ministries, are attacked simply for being identified with Christ. And about 17 people every day are either arrested or abducted simply for being followers of Jesus. You know, I read one story just from 2020, just a short, instant short story of what, um, what's going on around the world. And there was a village in Nigeria. And uh, Boko Haram, the um, terrorist organization, showed up around their village. And the first thing they did was they cut off all communication to the village so that the village could not call anyone or get in contact with anyone else around to come and help them. And so one of the things that they did was they rounded up all the men, and they simply asked them a question. Are you infidel or are you Muslim? And their answer to that question sealed their fate. And this woman that said that her husband was one of the ones who was rounded up, she said, when he was asked that question, he said, I am neither infidel nor Muslim. I am a Christian. And he knelt down and he prayed, and they killed him as he prayed. Here's what I know, and here's what I want us to understand about persecution. Persecution must be based on our identity with Jesus and not our constitution or our comfort. And why do I say that? Because there's real... <laughs> things happening around the world that we just don't see here. And one of the things I thought as I read that article was, man, I wish I knew this guy's name so I could stand up and say his name. And then it clicked in my head, but that's the point. He wasn't identified by his name. He was identified by Jesus' name. And that cost him his life. You know, this is a it's a difficult topic to talk about, right? It's not the most exciting thing to preach about. But here's, I just, 
there's going to be times where we have to stand up for what we believe is right. There's going to be times where we have to put our faith on the line. But there's also one thing else I want to be clear about. When we look at what's happening around the world, I just don't think what we experience here is anything like that, right? There's going to be times where we we have to do what is right. And in that moment, we're going to be judged or ridiculed or whatever. But these types of things are just going to happen. And I'm not going to harp on this for any length of time at all. But one of the things that's a little bit frustrating to me is when I hear Christians say that some of the things that we are going through, whether it's from our government or not, from whatever, that it's, it's persecution. And I just don't see it from Scripture. There are times when we should really stand up and do things about certain topics and subjects, and we just don't. And we should. And we have to be really clear, and this is why I'm having this conversation, right? We have to be really clear. What is persecution exactly? It's based on our identity with Jesus. And it's not about what makes us necessarily uncomfortable. It's not about what the law says or doesn't say. It's about who we are in Christ. And he says, when we are persecuted for him, it's going to be a blessing on us. Now, here's the really crazy thing. If we go to verse 12, <laughs> how does Jesus say we should respond to persecution? Matthew 5:12. be happy about it. Do you see why we name this series like maybe we should take Jesus' word seriously? You just want to look at Jesus and say, seriously? Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Seriously? Jesus, I get it. But like, shouldn't I be angry? Shouldn't I be frustrated? Shouldn't I fight back, right? Remember the, the friend in your corner is saying, get him, right? There's a reason these two verses about peace and persecution were put right next to each other. Jesus says, you make peace. And then, by the way, people are going to hate you. <laughs> but you are called to be peacemakers. But, I'm, but it's frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating. But it makes me, but it's not fair, right? And Jesus says, be happy about it. Why? Because persecution is a privilege. Persecution is a privilege. Persecution is something that, that, that sentence does not make any sense. That's a, that's a sentence that really doesn't. But it, what Jesus is saying is we get blessed when we walk through these situations. And I think there's three reasons I'd like to land on today as to why we understand persecution as a privilege and why it's a positive thing in our life. The first thing is that it makes us more like Jesus. Listen, no one was persecuted more for Jesus than Jesus. They killed him for being who he was. And so when he says to us, you have to look like me, right? The kingdom of heaven is going to be built on looking like me. It's, it's coming too. And, and Jesus doesn't lie to us about it. He didn't spring it on us. He doesn't surprise us with it. He literally says for us to understand that when you look like me, it's going to cost you. But the great thing is we can then understand what Jesus went through. We can be identified with him, and we are happy because we look more like Jesus in that moment. The second thing is that God can use our persecution for good. He can do good things with it. Here's, here's the crazy thing. If you look at history, and you look at the times when the church was persecuted the most, it also grew the most. So when Jesus says, be happy about it, one of the reasons we can be happy, even if we sat here today and we went, man, persecution is coming to the church in America. 
and it was coming hard. Why should we be happy about it? Because we should believe in that moment that the church is going to grow. When the, when the church is fat and happy, guess what? Nothing happens. But when we have to decide that we're going to reach more people in different ways and really intentionally go that direction, the church grows like crazy. And so when persecution comes, we can say, God's going to use this. And we can be happy about it and excited. Again, this sounds ridiculous, but we can be happy and excited about it because we know more people are going to come to know Jesus through it. Here's the third thing. Our reward is not in this kingdom, but the next. And Jesus says, it's not about what's going on here, right? This whole conversation is not about this kingdom. It's about the next. And persecution, I, I believe this, persecution only hurts when my kingdom is at risk. Persecution only hurts when my kingdom is the one that's going to take the hit. But when I hand it over to Jesus and he's the one in control of it, it's not about me anymore. And when I know the Prince of Peace, right, it's not about me anymore. I have peace in that moment to know that he's the one who's in control. I have one more illustration I want to share with us before we close our time together. Um, as a millennial, I've always had an issue uh, remembering how a certain piece of tender works, and it's, um, it's called a check. I don't use them a lot, okay? I always have to Google it to make sure I remember how to use a check right, okay? I know, I'm young. It's okay. But, right, what's this? There was a movie back in the 90s, okay? And it was called Blank Check. And the point of this movie was that this kid got sent a check from his grandmother that was blank. It was supposed to go to his parents so that they could write in, like, the amount he should get for his birthday. And he got it first. Now, there are a million holes in this plot. But here's what happened in the movie, right? He gets on the computer, somehow types in, like, a million dollars on the check. And somehow that clears, right? And grandma doesn't notice, and then he gets to buy everything he wants, okay? It's not the way the movie works. But this was every kid's dream. Like, when, in the 90s, when, I don't know, I was probably like six when it came out. Like, that would be awesome. Not the way checks work, okay? I remember that much. But here's the point, right? You fill out a check, you sign your name to it, it's attached to your bank account. I think the best way for us to understand what happens when we start to follow Jesus is literally we write a check, we leave it blank, we slide it across the table to Jesus, and we say, whatever you want to put in there is yours. You want my job? You got it. You want my money? You got it. You want my family? You got it. Right? Because it's not mine anymore. And as long as I hold on to this and keep my account close, when I get persecuted, my kingdom gets hit. My kingdom takes the hurt. But when I slide it across and I go, it's all yours. You write in whatever you want and I'll give it to you. It's not about me anymore. So when someone comes to your village and says, I'll kill you for being a Christian, it's yours. My life's yours. It's not mine anymore. That's the place we have to get to. To be able to say, no matter what Jesus asks of me, I'm going to do it. And I hope that we, as a church, whether you're here and looking at me or watching online, wherever you may be, 
that no matter the obstacle to worshiping Jesus, we will do it. No matter what it requires of us, we will do it. Doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable. Doesn't matter if we think it's a bad decision. Doesn't matter whatever. We just say, it's yours. And at the end of the day, what we do is we look at Jesus and we simply say, the whole bank account is yours. You can take it. It's not mine any longer. Here's a challenge for this week. Because I'm glad I don't have to look at you and say, the challenge this week is to stand up for your faith and maybe hand your life over for it. I am thankful that that's not the place that we're at at this moment in time. But the question is, and you have to kind of do some like searching on this yourself. What would be your greatest fear for Jesus to write in this blank and ask you to hand it over? What would be the most difficult thing for you to hand over if he asked you to? And then you got to pray about that thing. It's scary because when you say that thing, Jesus might ask for it. But that's the thing that we're holding on to that we have to hand over. And so think about that. What would be the most difficult thing for me to hand over? You know, this idea of, of persecution isn't one, that, again, it's not fun to talk about, but Jesus starts the conversation, right? Blessed are those. There's a promise there that he'll show up. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood, right? Even if it's not today, my reward is not here. It's in heaven. Let me pray for us today. Lord, this is a tough conversation to have. It's a tough reality to kind of let sink in. And it's hard sometimes to look at uh, situations in life and see them as persecution or not, understand what that means. And, and I ask that we would simply understand it as the fact that we've handed it over to you and our lives belong to you. And then when persecution comes, no matter what that looks like, whether it's based on our decisions we made, it's somebody laughing at us, lying about us, making fun of us, or whether it costs us something greater like our job, or even our life, that we would be ready to hand that over to you. And that no matter what, no matter the obstacle, we would be willing to worship you, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's frustrating, even when we don't agree with the situation. That there would be no obstacle that would keep us from worshiping you. We thank you that we can gather in a place like this and encourage one another, sing together, and learn from your word. And we pray that this week you would point out to us the thing that we are most afraid to put in that blank and that we would hand it over to you. In Jesus' name, amen.